So tonight we want to begin a series on God. Now this is really a continuation of a series I did last year on our doctrinal statement called What We Teach. So my goal is to eventually teach through the whole doctrinal statement. It'll take me a little while to, to get through that so that people can listen to that and better understand uh, what positions our church ta uh, takes and, and what we teach. So tonight it is, we're going to start into the doctrine of God. We will not get through it, but we will make a, a start in, into that. Now, um, my goal is just to help you understand who God is. Uh, some of these things will not be new. Most of it will not be new, but that's okay. We need to, to remind ourselves of the truths of which the Bible teaches about God. Um, these things need, we need reminders of these things and to, to, to go deeper in the things that we do know. So I want to start with the question of this, where can we turn to know God? Don't say the Bible yet. I know you're thinking that. That's good. That's the right answer. Where do people, maybe the question should be, where do people turn to know God? If someone wanted to know God, where would they turn to? Well, some, many people would turn within themselves. That they find God by looking within themselves. Now, of course, that's, that's bad, but... But why is that bad? Why is it bad that they, they turn to within themselves? They're looking for God, not necessarily, not necessarily the quacks that think they're God, but, but they're looking for God within themselves. In other words, they're looking uh, at their own characteristics to try to help them understand something about God. And there are many Christians today who would say, oh, I don't, I don't do that. I don't look within myself to understand God. But what happens when they hear an unpopular doctrine that's clearly taught in scripture, like election, uh, or like definite atonement? And we'll get to that. Commonly, a response is, well, my God's not like that. Or you might hear, well, my God's more loving than that. Or maybe they don't use the pronoun my, they'll just say, well, well, God isn't like that. But they're not using, they're not actually going to the Bible and arguing from the scriptures. That would be a good thing. They're just presupposing that God is like them. They think it would be unfair for God to have a definite atonement. And therefore, they make God into their own image. They don't mean to do that. And Actually, many of us have been guilty of that as well in our, you know, in our discipleship and growing. We don't, we learn about God progressively. So there have been times, probably in each one of our lives, if we're honest, where we have accidentally, unintentionally made God in our image. You've thought about God like you, that you like. Why doesn't God do this? Like we, that, this happens when we see something evil and we say, Why didn't God prevent that? It's a human reaction, but obviously God didn't want to prevent it. And he has a reason. We may never know the reason, but the, the human things that we wrestle with causes us to think, well, why is God like he is? And sometimes there's good answers, and sometimes God just says, here's my characteristics, trust me, and that's what we go back to. But the, but the whole idea of, of making God into our own image 
is not new. Now, if you would open up your Bibles to Exodus 32, and I want to show you something interesting. Many of you have probably seen this, but there may be some of you who have not seen this. Exodus 32 is the account of the, the golden calf. Moses went up on the mountain. And I'll just pick, pick, pick uh, the reading up at the beginning of verse 32. Uh, sorry, chapter 32 of Exodus, being at verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make a God who will go before us. Now, that part you're familiar with. They're going to make an idol. You're familiar with that. Um, For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So he delayed long. He thought they thought maybe God like annihilated Moses and he's never coming back. Aaron said to them, "Tear off the gold rings which you which are in your the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me." And then all the people tore the, off the rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God. So far, just like any other pagan. But notice carefully what the text says. This is your God. And this is Aaron speaking. This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Okay, they're not like the pagans anymore. The pagans make an idol and, you know, they worship an idol. But here, the Israelites have taken pagan practice, making an idol, and they've now just mixed it with what they know about the true and living God. So they have just made Aaron, has just made God into his own image. This isn't just like, they're not worshiping the calf as like some... uh earthly God. They're saying the golden calf is the God who brought us up on the land of Egypt. Now keep in mind, this is the Exodus. What did they just see? They just see, they just saw all of God's 10 plagues where he annihilated. Each one of the plagues goes after one of the gods of Egypt. So they had seen God's power. They knew there was the true and living God. Now, they hadn't been given the Mosaic law yet and all that, but they, they'd seen God's power and rescue. They'd seen the, the, the pillar of smoke, the pillar of fire that protected them from the Egyptian army. They saw the Red Sea open up and they went through on dry land. And then they saw that same sea close in on the Egyptian army where God wiped out the most powerful army probably in the face of the earth at that time. God just took them out. They saw all that. They knew, like from that standpoint, they knew the true and living God. So they're saying this calf is that true and living God. That typifies the tendency that we have to make God into our own image. We take something that we understand or they've seen. They saw a lot of idol worship in Egypt. And then they mix that with true faith in, in God, and you come out with corruption. And, and look God's response, if I just continue. So, um, 
This is, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Verse five, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. Again, just reiterates, they are taking this image and saying, this is the true and living God, Yahweh. So the next day they rose early, offered the burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Rose up to play is an indication that there was sexual immorality going on. Then the Lord, the true God, not a contortion of God, but the true God. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it. Not me. God doesn't allow substitutions. They have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O, o Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. God knew what they were doing. He knew exactly what they said. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. So God just, again, the text is conveying, the, the, there's aspects of God that he conveys to us to help us understand who he is. Like God, God knew from the very beginning what he was going to do, but here he is relaying his anger towards sin, his people. In a sense, it's a test of Moses' work as, a, as a, a bit of an ambassador between the people of Israel and God. But God's saying, just let me love. Let me destroy these people. Won't get into all the text. This text is very rich. But, but what I want you to see is that God was highly offended, highly angered, and totally rejected the worship of his chosen people, the nation, simply because they worshiped an idol in as if it were him. You cannot play around with God's worship. God demands worship on his terms, his way. You cannot be inventive with it. And, and this is why it's critical that we understand God and we approach God the way that he has the way that he is laid out for us, ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is why people can believe that there's one true God, but unless they're approaching God and worshiping that one true God in the way that he is, that he is outlined and dictated, that is through our Lord Jesus Christ, he is highly offended and highly angered at people who try to, do, try to worship him in a way that he has not authorized. So there's, a, there's an account of, of what's called strange fire. It's offered by priestly sons. that They're, they're offering worship that's not authorized. And, and God annihilates them. Eli's sons mm -hmm. annihilates them. Mm -hmm. This is, that, again, the, the intensity here is important to see. Um, and all it is, is it's just making God in your own image. And so I just relay this to say this is that we have got to really guard ourselves against making God in our own image. And God's patient. He's loving kind. He's, he's abounding with loving kindness. He is quick to forgive. Right? All those things are also true. 
that, that does not mean he's overlooking the things, the ways at which we make God into our own image and we worship him in, in an unacceptable way. In, in Psalm 50, 21, just kind of comment on this and rebuking the wicked, God says, these things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. So the wicked took a certain course of action. God chose to remain silent. And because he remained silent at the time, they thought that he was just like them. But God says, I'm going to rebuke you. I'm going to reprove you. God is not like us. Uh, Proverbs 16.25, and then also it appears in 14.12, Proverbs 16.25, says, there is a way that seems right to a man. There is. But its end is the way of death. So if we begin to make God into our own image and, and decide the doctrines of God based on what we think is right, it's gonna, we're going to be led astray. We're going to be misguided because we're, we're not being guided by the word of God. So we must not make God in our own image. So you cannot, you cannot judge whether a, a doctrine about God is right or wrong based on what you think is fair or what you think is right or what you think is appropriate. Because that's making God into your own image. Now, can we learn about God by looking at creation? If you can't look within, maybe we can look without. Can we learn about God from creation? Well, yes, we can. We, we know that. We, we, can, we can know a few things about God from, from creation. You can turn to Psalm 19, where this is affirmed. Psalm 19, just looking at the first, first part of that. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are their words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So the first part of this psalm talks about what we call general revelation. It's, it's revelation about God that's, that's known throughout the earth. Just as the sun goes up go, and comes back down, it, all of that tells us something about God. Uh, so we can learn about God from Creation. We also know this from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'll read a few verses there because it also affirms that we can learn about God from creation. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Listen, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, 
his eternal power and divine nature. So we're getting some specificity as for what we can, what somebody can comprehend through creation. Right? So that is his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen. Clearly. Notice that. Clearly seen, being understood through what was what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And Romans, uh, Paul continues in Romans talking about the three series of judgments that God brings on them. But, but the point is that every man and woman knows that God exists. That's true even of the most ardent atheist. Now, somebody who's been an atheist for a long time is going to have so suppressed that truth that they will deny that they know God. And they probably have convinced themselves that they don't know God. But what are we going to trust? Someone's uh, self-assessment of themselves, which is not very accurate. Or are we going to trust the Word of God? I'm going to trust the Word of God. The Word of God says that every single person knows God, that God exists. So to know God, we can, we can turn to creation, but creation only gives us a, a limited amount of, of data. Now it's clear, and it's enough to hold everybody guilty for because they know God exists, and they know that they've been created by him. Uh, there are other, other proofs to that, but the, the essence here to understand is that God has made himself clearly understood, but there's limited data as far as what you can glean from what we call general revelation. General revelation means it's, it's revelation available to everyone. They don't need the word of God in order to know these things. But to know God accurately and in the details as he re has revealed himself, we need the word of God. We need special revelation. And God knows that we need, we need to know him. And we need, to that God, we need God to reveal himself to us. We are not going to know God, again, by looking at ourselves. We're not even going to really get to know who he is beyond just his, that he exists and his eternal power by looking at creation. We, we need to know about God. We won't know that God is gracious, that God is quick to forgive without special revelation given to us in the word of God. So we need to know this. That, it's interesting. If you, if you go back to Exodus a minute, Exodus 33. In Exodus 33, we have an account of uh, Moses interacting with God. That's, that's quite interesting. And, and I'm going to read for, uh, verses, beginning at verse 12 in chapter 33. Moses is going to be interceding on, the, on behalf of the, the, the nation of Israel with the Lord. Now, just let's pick this up. And this is um, the, the Lord's really giving of a, a covenant, what we would call the Mosaic covenant. But really, it's, it's more like the Israeli covenant. It's, it's the, the covenant that God makes with the, the nation of Israel. Then Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, Yahweh, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom 
you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you. Understand what Moses is saying. Here's Moses able to talk to, to God as a man talks to a man. And, and he's, he's, he, that is not enough for Moses. There's, there's such an allure with who God is that Moses wants to know more. Right? And that is an indication that really, once you begin to know God, you'll never be satisfied right, with just the limited amount of knowledge you have. You're going to want to know more. This, this is, he is a great God. He says, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Um, and he said, my, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we and I, your people, may be distinguished from all of the people who are upon the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Now, when, when God says I, to Moses, you have found favor in my sight, don't misunderstand to think that somehow Moses earned that. that. That You're only saved by grace, and that's true even of Moses, that he was saved by faith, <clears throat> looking forward to the Messiah that, that God would provide. This is God just choosing to find favor with Moses. He says, I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord, that of Yahweh, before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. My face you shall not see. Now all that's just a description of what's going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. Verse chapter 34 gets into actually what happens. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as Yahweh had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. That is, as Moses called upon the name of Yahweh to worship him, the Lord descended. Then the Lord, Yahweh, passed by in front of him. And look look what happens. That and proclaimed. Right? Here you get God becoming a preacher. The best preacher there has ever been. You have heard nothing yet until you get to heaven or until you're with the Lord and you hear God preach. This is God preaching. 
You know, he doesn't put on a starry display in the heavens. He could have done that when, he, when Moses said, show me your glory. But he does what? He preaches. He wants Moses to know his character, more important than showy fireworks. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, or Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, look, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. I know in our culture, people, when they, when they worship, when they sing, and not using those as totally equivalent terms, you worship when you sing, but singing is not, is not the only form of worship. In fact, it's just a small band of worship. People tend to stand up. What is Moses doing? Bow. Bow. It's actually very common for people to bow. And that, that bowing very, very well was like getting as low to the earth as you can because God is so high and lifted up. So in our culture, we don't do that. We don't, we don't think about that with God. But that, that's, that his, his body was doing what his, where his heart was. His body was going where his heart was already at. Right? Falling down before his God to worship him. And he said, now if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, let, I pray, let the Lord go long in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your possession. And that's pretty cool when you think about that. That God's gonna take a sinful people and make them his possession. Tie that in with what we're learning, what we're gonna learn in Ephesians about us becoming the inheritance of God. That's just one of the connections that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, intentionally makes through, the, through the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon him as he's writing Ephesians. He is thinking this right here. He's thinking that, that God's people are his possession, his inheritance. And it, what you know about your own life and about the life of the church, you think, that's your inheritance? On a practical level, we struggle with that. But through Christ, God sees that as a rich treasure that will display his glory for eternity because it's all of his grace. This is the God we worship. This is the God we want to know. Many of the truths that we learn about God in our doctrinal statement they're not new. They're not new. And there's a tendency when something is not new for it to grow kind of dull. We get used to hearing these things. They become commonplace. And, and the Lord knew that that would happen. It's one of the reasons why in Proverbs that Solomon so frequently pleaded with his son to listen. I didn't go through and pull out all of these, but a few of them. Proverbs 1.8, hear my son, your father's discipline, and do not abandon your mother's instruction. He's pleading with him, hear it. 
you know, a child lives with their parents. They hear a lot of things. Things sound very familiar. But you have a father who's saying, hear me. Really hear me. Do not abandon your mother's instruction. Proverbs 20, verses 1 to 2, and also 5. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you. Look at that. that just the, the imagery is here. Treasure my commandments. To make, your, to make your ear pay attention to wisdom, incline your heart to discernment. Verse 5. If you will understand the fear, they said, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. You treasure these commandments. And ultimately, this applies to the word of God. If you treasure these commandments, you will, you will know God and fear God. Fear is a, there is not just a, afraid of, of God's judgment. This is, this is a reverential worship of him, awe of him. Proverbs 30, uh, sorry, Proverbs 3, again, verse 1, just hear the father's pleading. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart guard my commandments. Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's a good verse and think talking about God. Do not lean on your own understanding. Cling to God's word. Proverbs 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, the discipline of a father and pay attention that you may know understanding. For I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my instruction. And then verse 5. Acquire wisdom. Acquire understanding. Do not forget and do not turn away from the sayings of my mouth. Proverbs 4, 10. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Proverbs 4, verse 20. My son, pay attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them deviate from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. We're just through chapter 4. And in chapter 4, like every paragraph starts with this pleading. Why is Solomon pleading? It's like you want to say, Solomon, you should have taken your own advice. But that's another sermon. He's pleading with his son. Right? Pleading, pleading, pleading. Why? Because it's, it's easy for these things to fade. It's easy things these things to be old hat and, and us not be enamored with the greatness of God because we're familiar with these things. Right? But there's another reason. And that as we treasure these things within our heart, as we treasure God's word, the more we treasure, the more we learn about God. And Derek Kidner wrote a, a very helpful, it's a small commentary on Proverbs. doesn't go very deep in many places, but it does cover a lot of the Proverbs. But he says something very profound here at, at beginning of chapter four with all these repetitions of pleadings. He says this, and I'll just quote him. The constant repetition of such a call is deliberate for a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths, unquote. That last part is especially important. For a major part of godliness lies in dogged attentiveness to familiar truths. It, when you hear something new, interesting, you know, the news story, all that just kind of gets your interest right away. And the Bible talks about that, how People at the end times, they'll want to hear something new. They want to have their ears tickled. But the truths that we need to meditate on are the, the old truths, the truths found in God's word. And that by keeping these things in our heart, treasuring them in our heart, trying to understand them better, 
getting them into not just our heads, but into our lives, it helps us to grow in godliness. Because the more we know about God, the more we grow in godliness. So if someone says they, they if someone memorizes a systematic theology, you know, the big white book, biblical doctrine, if you were to memorize that, but your life was a, sh- was a shambles, I'd say you didn't know anything. Even though intellectually you could regurgitate all the information, it hasn't been of any benefit to you. You haven't treasured it in, in your heart. And there are people like that who can quote large amounts of scripture, but it has very little impact upon their lives. So the, the, you know, we don't want to overreact and say, well, memorizing isn't, isn't helpful. No, that's not my point. My point is you need to treasure these things in your heart that you might know God and grow and grow in godliness. So know and, and embrace the revelation of God that he has given us of himself in the scriptures so that you can properly know, worship, and represent him. All that was an introduction, a long one. But I wanted to plead with you right, to treasure what we know about our Lord and our God. And due to time, I'm going to stop right there. And the next time we're going to pick up with the first paragraph of our doctrinal statement, I won't do the introduction. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.